Storie Libere presents I have a secret. I've kept it for more than four years, despite having had countless opportunities to talk about it and to use it in my favour, I've kept it inside, in the most precious space, silence. My secret is a woman. I had stumbled across her name here and there while I was writing Wild Wild Sheila, an instant book that stemmed from my sudden curiosity about Osha's commune. He was an Indian spiritual teacher who became famous all over the world due to his unconventional ideas, which gave life to a community ready to do anything for him. This woman had been close to Osho and was the only one who, once she left the community, did not spare him, to say the least. But there was very little known about her, even though she played an important role, similar to that of Sheila, who later became the guru's personal secretary. I started looking for her on Facebook. I wasn't even sure I was contacting the right person. The woman I was writing to lived in the United States, and I knew she would probably never reply. But she did, straight away. She said that the truth of the story was complex, and nobody was interested in hearing it. But she also mentioned that she would be travelling to Europe shortly, and that she would get in touch to grab a coffee. That's how it all started. We did have that coffee on a beautiful day in May, now more than four years ago. We sat in a cafe in a big European city. Two women who had never seen each other before, complete strangers, separated by decades of experience, all in her favour. I had read very little about her. There was not much I could find. And even though I didn't know her, it was clear who I had in front of me. The black box. The one who knew. Sitting there, I had prepared myself for anything. I expected to soon see the edgy and authoritarian persona many had described. She had warned me on the phone saying, we will click or we won't. What worried me the most was that I was clueless about what she thought of me. Who was I? What the hell did I want? Was I someone to get rid of quickly? At the time, the book had already been written, and Soli, my first podcast dedicated to the children who grew up in Osha's communes between the 70s and the 80s, wasn't even on the horizon. In fact, I didn't even know what I wanted or why I was there. But the woman sitting in front of me was quick to smile, with a friendly and curious gaze, and what struck me the most was how she spoke Italian. She was so fluent even after many years away on the other side of the world. Straight away I felt a sort of familiarity, perhaps because she looked a lot like an auntie of mine who I deeply loved. She had the same sweetness in her eyes. I wasn't sure I wanted to ask her questions. It felt wrong and inappropriate at that stage, but I didn't have to. She did all the talking and gave me all the answers. For those two hours, I listened. And today, in hindsight, that time felt so short. We parted on a street corner in that city so full of spring, and for what we knew, we might never see each other again. She's been in my thoughts all these years. I've stored all her words and the memories she gifted me with in those hours. But I put them aside, as if I'd never received them. I worked on other projects where that information certainly would have had a place. In fact, like an outdated journalist might say, it would have allowed me a scoop. But it didn't seem right to use it for my story, where she had no reason to appear or to be used opportunistically. And yet, she's always been there, in the background. I could feel her, and I felt the weight of what I knew, thanks to her. In the years after that meeting, Diksha and I wrote to each other occasionally, a few lines here and there, and then sometimes a little more, a thought, a link, an update, a geolocation, then some calls, which turned into hours and hours of video chats, and in the end the decision to meet again and again. Our meetings turned into what you're about to hear, the secret I kept to myself for four years, which is that there's a woman that nobody has spoken about, who has kept her secrets for more than 40 years. And now, she has decided that the time has come to speak out. 
I'm Roberta Lippi and I write for a living. I've written for print media, TV, radio, online, and finally with voice, two podcasts for Storie Libere, Soli and Love Bombing. In the past years, I've had an epiphany that led me to telling those stories, which today led into the one I'm about to share with you, a long confession, or perhaps what we should more simply call a report of events, events that only a few people know about, and which from today, you will know about too. This is Dragon Lady, The Last Witness. Her name is Diksha. She was one of the women of power in Osho's entourage. For those who are not aware of Osho, he was an Indian guru who gained fame in the 70s and 80s. I've spoken at length about his story in a book and then in the podcast, Soli. You can also catch up on him in the docuseries Wild Wild Country, which triggered my unstoppable curiosity and has led me here, even though I have nothing to do with the sannyas world. Diksha was one of Osho's earliest Western disciples, arriving on the scene even before he was called Bhagwan, in the early days of Bombay. For ten years she was one of his most devoted followers, a sort of living legend in the Pune ashram in India, where she was in charge of several departments, including the kitchens. Osho praised her in a number of discourses, calling her a Zen master and a dragon master and many considered her a true tyrant. She was one of the few disciples who had direct access to the guru. This story takes time. It's the tale of a young woman, educated and well-off, who put her intelligence at the service of a master she believed to be illuminated, until she realized that enlightenment, as it's usually presented, doesn't exist, and that she herself had been the victim of a spell. None of the sannyasins over the years have really been interested in hearing Diksha's side of the story. Diksha who knows, Diksha who is dangerous, Diksha who can destroy a dream. And that is exactly what is about to happen. The telling of a truth that once heard cannot be unheard. Even if one pretends it doesn't exist, that truth endures because truth is illuminated. To be honest, I think I was a typical young woman of that particular time. Yes, I was interested in psychology, in sociology. I was interested in how the mind works, partly because my parents uh, had divorced, and I did miss uh, my father. After the divorce, we became kind of estranged from him. And so I I wanted to understand myself, uh, understand society, Um, my grandfather had a lovely library. My parents had a lovely library. So maybe I, I read uh, from a young age a book that was above my capacity, let's say, but they were stimulating. And because I uh, was interested in that kind of various topic, I remember that my father bought me a book about even India. He bought me the book about uh, um all the mythological story about India. And I remember that I read it and I was intrigued. And that's what I found out about the epic battle, you know, between good and evil, you know, the Arjuna, Krishna. My mother was interested in philosophical society. Steiner, Nietzsche. I remember my uncle and my mother and my father discussing about Nietzsche. And my mother was seeing Nietzsche in a different way from my, from my father and discussing. And I remember as they were talking, I said, what are you talking about? They say Nietzsche. So I went and took, took a book and started looking at the book. I think I was maybe 11. <laughs> so I think I was exposed to that. As um, I grow up um, and find myself in Geneva, where I went to college, when I went to university, uh, who was um, uh, at the time uh, a very international cosmopolitan society, I, I met, uh, because I was studying language, um, all kinds of uh, people who 
were interested or were from different religion. A friend of mine, Mary, I remember a Chinese man who was working, if I'm correct, uh, at UNESCO. And he's the first one who talked about uh, uh, Chinese Buddhism or how they interpret it in relation not Indian Buddhism. So I think it was being exposed in a way to that. Uh, and I don't even know when I start uh, uh, liking the concept of a guru. As you read all this book, there's always the meet, the, uh, the disciple, they find the guru, and the guru will guide you, will teach you, will help you. I didn't even consider or even pay attention to the concept of enlightenment at the time. It was more that true meet somebody who has walked a path that you have not yet walked because you're young and who maybe will help you overcome the inevitable bumps, you know, in our emotional. More, It was more about inner life. It was not on a practical level. And I think that's how it started. Then after uh, being in Geneva, I went and lived in New York for a while. It was at the time that there was the black movement, the woman liberation movement. And this was instrumental to understand that society can help you only to a certain level. And then you have to find inner resource. And after living in America for a while, I inherited, uh, I had a small inheritance from my um, paternal great aunt. And this allowed me something that I always wanted, like a child, uh, to do a around the world trip in a way. So I could afford that in a way. And that's what I did. And it, during my trip around the world, I visited a dear, a friend of mine who by, by the time was uh, uh, teaching in Taiwan. And together we travel, and that's how I find myself in Bombay. It's 1971, and this young woman has already entered the workplace, has an interest in philosophy, psychology, history, new disciplines. Like many other women her age, especially from a bourgeois background, she struggles with the empty rules and hypocrisy of her environment. She wants to get away from superficiality and dive into the depth of things. She speaks a few languages. She has her own defined personality that does not do well with constraints, and she despises flattery. But she's curious, and her curiosity is soon ignited when she discovers the existence of this teacher. So when I arrived in Bombay in 71, I was not really looking for an Indian teacher. Uh, I was not. But I, I was into yoga at the time. I had done yoga and I think had helped me. Uh, I didn't believe in some of the philosophy of yoga because there are so many branches. I didn't find one that I was really, was much my need. But on a physical level, you know, uh, I think yoga was a good tool in a way. And I, I like meditation. I had gone to, to you know, in Geneva, the Mahesh Yogi once went, came to Geneva, Sri Chimoy. There were, at the time, at the late 60s, there were people, uh, so-called guru. And then it, every time I went, uh, I saw Mahesh Yogi who stopped and, and got me a flower and personally invited me, you know, so... It never, never attracted me because I never liked the group. Uh, I was actually almost put off by the uh, the circus that usually surround me. But when I went to India and this uh, friend of the family suggested that uh, there was, uh, oh, he said, oh, you, mm, I see that you are interested in Buddhism. And I said, yeah, yeah, actually I'm interested in Buddhism but also in the different aspect of Buddhism. Why in, in Thailand they manifest in one way? Why in India manifest? You know, there are nuanced, but they're still significant enough uh, 
that for me was interesting. And so I said, oh, he said, there is a teacher in, in Bombay who just lately came to live in Bombay who um, was a, a philosophy professor and is now speaking publicly. And this man also speaks about Gandhi. Of course, when I was young, you know, I read Gandhi autobiography. And so he said, he said, oh, I will arrange for you uh, tomorrow morning. I will send the car. He was a very, very nice uh, gentleman. So I will send the car and he will pick you up in your hotel and you can, uh, maybe you should go to his place because he's an interesting guy. And I remember that he thought that this man was interested because he was a speaker who spoke against the, the traditional way of thinking, Indian style. So he said, you know, he's an he's a iconoclast. He speaks against Gandhi, he speaks against this, against that, you know. So you will like it because he had met me and saw that I was kind of, in my own way, a rebel. And true, a strange coincidence, um, an acquaintance of some friend who was in Bombay, Italian uh, businessman that lived in Bombay, I met Rajneesh at the time, you know, he, of course he was an Indian teacher with only not even half a dozen Western disciples. So that's how I started. Through word of mouth, the young woman arrives at the house of this strange character who at the time is 40 years old with a strong following of Indians, but only a few Western disciples. And that's what happened. So I went. He was living in, in a nice um, apartment, but small, with just three, four uh, followers. At the time, people were not called, he was not calling disciples. They were calling themselves a devotee or a friend. He had already started um, talking about the concept of neo-sanyas, meaning a new way to be a disciple. And I must say that they, I was more taken by his secretary than him. The first time I went to his apartment, the first person I saw it was this Indian woman who had been uh, a secretary for a, a little while, maybe just one or since he had arrived back in Bombay. And he, I think he arrived the year before. And I was very taken by her. She was uh, warm. I think she was, of course, a few years older than me. But I must say that the, f the first seduction happened through her, not through him. And she called him Acharya Rajneesh at the time. Acharya means teacher. Rajneesh was kind of a given name because his legal name is actually Chandra Mohan uh, Jain. But they used to call him, uh, when he was young, Raja, Rajneesh. So he said, um, the child was out for the day. At the time, he was still leaving his room, usually to meet a journalist, to give a talk, to go to people's houses. He said, but uh, it will be back later. But uh, I suggest you do the dynamic meditation tomorrow morning. And then afterward, you come because he will be available after. And that's what happened. But I must say that it was her that I stayed there. She offered me tea, um, Indian chai. And there was something about her um, enthusiasm and her, I would not say fanaticism, but you could see that she really believed. And I remember when I say, yeah, but I'm leaving in few days. I just wanted to, you know, I thought maybe there's a place that I, I, I was very not sure. Our protagonist has just met Lakshmi, Osho's first and most devoted disciple, the one we know as his first secretary. She's a person whom Diksha, who doesn't have that Indian name yet, always speaks of with great respect, even though Lakshmi's unquestioning devotion helped pull Diksha into the Guru's orbit. So the next day, when I went, I did the dynamic meditation, with, you know, a meditation that he devised by putting together different techniques from different other traditions. 
and I went to, after the meditation and I met him. He was, you know, you enter his room and he was extremely warm, extremely welcoming. You know, Lakshmi brought the hymns and he said, come, come, I've been waiting for you. This is your home. Uh, I, I remember I was overwhelmed. I, f- I never felt so welcome. Later on, I realized that he was saying this to everybody. But at the time, it felt uh, real. And he was, of course, uh, he started asking uh, where I came from, what was my idea, did I stay, I'm staying in India. Um, and at the time, I said, yeah, I'm only here for, I don't know, maybe 10 days. And he said, oh, can you change your ticket right away? And I said, I don't know, I don't think so. I, so right away, he, yeah, I suggested, and that's what I did. I remained longer, and she said, uh, that's where the Acharya can help you, is when you don't need uh, a teacher. That's where the teacher helps you. This young woman, on her dream trip around the world, decides to stop, leaving the friend accompanying her to carry on travelling. Our protagonist, instead, changes hotel to be closer to the Acharya's apartment. I saw him almost every day, if not sometimes even twice a day. But I was still hesitating to take sannyasi because I didn't feel attracted to what was the beginning of the, let's say, Rajneesh Osho structure. But at the time, there was not much structure in a way. But there was something that I didn't like. I didn't like the fact that you have to wear only one color. I thought, oh my God, I have so many nice clothes in Geneva that are waiting for me. What happened to my Hermes bag or my Gucci <laughs> loafer? You know, like I was kind of middle-class, silly woman. There's something keeping her in Bombay. She feels an opening, a stirring of new possibilities. One evening, the Acharya invites her to a friend's house for a long philosophical discussion in front of a small group of people. The exchange goes on and on and pillows are laid out on the terrace as they talk into the early morning hours. And I still remember that the night became very interesting. And they spoke, uh, I didn't understand anything. They didn't speak in English. I don't know if they spoke in Marathi or in Gujarat, where you come from. But, um, but one of them sat near me, a nice man, and he translated. They were discussing obscure concept of uh, from Jain uh, understanding of that uh, in relation to the Hindu and you know kind of that and I remember that it was very interesting because it was not superficial it was just not uh, it was very interesting so but it was very casual and then at a certain time at one moment I could see that he said oh, okay it was time for him to go but it was late I Maybe the, even the early hour in the morning. So this particular meeting, I do look back with a certain amount of uh, fondness uh, because it was an open exchange. You could see he will say something and then somebody else from another room will say something else and they will not, I would say, argue. It was more... I, equal in a way, even if people treated with him with respect and touch his feet. But it's not like later on where he could talk for one or two hours and everybody was silent and you, you were not allowed, you know, to call for disturb like he was God. At the time, he was not called Bhagwan. He was called Acharya and he was considered a teacher. The Acharya draws this Western woman into his reality, and she starts to hang out every day with these new people that have suddenly entered her life. In the master's comfortable apartment, where she now spends more and more time, the Acharya lives with his partner, Kranti, who is also a distant cousin, along with two Indian followers and a helper, Lakshmi, who lives nearby, is also there every day from early morning until late in the evening, gracing the space with her smile and sincerity. 
if I think that there was a, a person who believed that he was really a special human being, was Lakshmi. Of course, forget the people now that maybe even never met him, but Lakshmi was his first disciple in a way. That's when she started, she helped him. And she's the one who decided to wear a picture, you know, a mala, it's kind of a beaded necklace with this picture. She's the one who started, and she's the one who chose the orange color, who, of course, traditionally in India is the color that so-called people who renounce life, renounce mundane life chose. Uh, and she's the one who tried different colors and then she said that she, there was a kind of orange rusty color that she felt that it was good. And so suddenly people start, before even he decided, people start wearing. They saw Lakshmi wearing the mala, so they also wanted to have the same picture. And then officially it became our dress code, the orange and the mala. But when I arrived, he still had people who were dressing in white because he's a Jain from a particular, you know, religious group in India. And many of the Jain are, are businessmen, are into uh, jewelry, they are cloth merchants. Actually, we're going back to the West before I took sannyasi, before he said, you know, it's time for you to, uh, you are ready, etc. I said, you know, I'm going back to Geneva. I'm a freelance translator. Of, I felt that dressing orange would be awkward. He said, no, no, don't worry. Um, I have uh, many of my uh, disciples. Some choose white and they are devotee. So you can choose white if you prefer in a way. But then, of course, afterward, when I took sannyas, he said, orange is the color of the sun, there is in sun, and etc. So that's how it happened. So I honestly can say that I was not seduced, but I was attracted by Lakshmi. For me, a very nice human being and very friendly, and she believed. So, you know, her belief, her sincerity was... Uh, was what pulled me in. But this woman doesn't want to be initiated straight away. She's not particularly interested in taking sannyas, as it is called. There are hundreds, or sometimes even thousands of Indians listening to Acharya's free and public speeches, but one can count the Western disciples on the fingers of two hands. She's not in a hurry, but he seems to know which buttons to push. He was very good in dismantling, dismantling in a way, my doubt. So that when uh, one day, I remember, he came out of his room and I was sitting in his living room thinking, ah, maybe it's time to, I don't know if I want to. He came out and I didn't realize that he had come out of his room and he tapped my head and said, so you're still thinking? You don't know that you are ready, but I see that you're ready to take the jam. Come, you know, I will be at the other side, you know, waiting for you. And I remember that in, and there were other people that said, oh, look, you know, he came and he touched you, all that, you know, also peer pressure. Even then, that there were like maybe half a dozen Western sannyasi. And so finally she decides to become a disciple. But this initiation isn't like the ones we've heard about, those that take place later in Puna's ashram, where every evening eager initiates take sannyas, one after another in a well-choreographed ritual. It's very simple, you know, like, like the day that he says, oh, you're ready. The next day he says, oh, you're ready. And right away he went on his side, you know, he had like a little shelf where there was some mala, you know, already the necklace. And I remember that he took it, so, so, ready, you're ready. And so he put this necklace 
And then, of course, uh, at the, the time, he will still write his name and choose his name. I was with, a, with another woman was in the room, and, um, and, he, and he said, what is your name? And I said, my name is my name. And he liked my name, and he said, oh, that's a beautiful name. We will keep that name. But that woman, she said, no, no, you give everybody Indian name. You should also give her an Indian name. And that's why he said, uh, okay, so then I, your name will be Diksha. I mean, initiation in a way, because uh, I initiate you today to a, new, um, to a new life. This is the beginning. I remember that I felt, okay, you know, like, uh, but it, like I said, the surrounding, the setup at that time in history, I don't think it could happen today, of course, was very seductive because uh, our generation, some people, not everybody, I would say, I would not say a great number, but a good number from our generation were kind of lost. You know, we went to India. Why? Because we were lost. On one level, of course, we were wounded soul, like everybody else, not that we were more wounded or less wounded. But it was a particular historical time. People had tried the social revolution in a way or another, and it didn't work out. Um, so some of the people that took uh, the road to India, some, of course, followed the detail because, you know, people are, by nature, parrots. The copycat, but uh, some were confused, uh, were lost. I would say. I'm not saying that our generation, my generation, was more lost uh, than the generation now. I think each generation has their own challenge. I mean, my mother said that how hard that was for her generation. Uh, had to deal with the Second World War. So some of the people I think that went to Rajneesha, including myself, is because we felt, okay, we cannot change the world, okay, at least we will change ourselves. But in our longing to change ourselves, also there was an escapism. We were escaping a society that we felt, rightly so, yeah, that was not addressing issue that were, that even today, as we speak, they're still festering. It's not that they've changed after 50 years. They've not. We did find shelter in India. India is a particular country, you know, it's unique. And let's not forget this was 1971 when I was in India the first time. And India just gained her independence. So it was only, you know, not even 20 years. So I met people who were in the, in the movement, in the famous, you know, movement, and they talk about that, met Gandhi. Lakshmi had met Gandhi as a young woman because her family was, you know, of course, pro-independent, and so they'd been invited. And she remembered that he had touched her head and, and uh, you know, like that he had kind of blessed her, like they say in India. So India was up and coming at that time. And at the same time, there was a certain amount of optimism in India. There, there were a lot of, there were changes. Yeah, people will, were proud, in a way, proud that, you know, that they managed to <laughs> become independent and kick the British out. And they still had a kind of, I would say, admiration for the British, even then. They felt now we're equal in a way where, you know, so they could afford in a way to, you know, be magnanimous. India has something to offer in a way. Maybe not guru, uh, but even now there's, you know, guru is so ingrained in the Indian, uh, I would say, not only mentality, but way of thinking. But now guru are also playing political role. Their guru were more the old-fashioned guru. Rajesh was a, not an old-fashioned guru, but, you know, the concept of guru. I must say that some of us that came and went to India and stayed were also seduced by the easiness of life. First, most of us could 
you know, go back to the West, work a few months, and then have enough money to live all year. It was very cheap. I mean, cheap to us, Western standard. And not only this, uh, uh, if you change the market, the dollar, the black market, or the Swiss francs, whatever you had, you got a good return. So literally people could go and work three months and come back and live a year. Of course, you live in simple circumstance. You know, the room was simple. You know, in, of course, in Geneva, I had a house, I had a car. You know, you have more comfort. In India, of course, you rent a little room, maybe you find a little lodge where, you know, you share maybe a bathroom. But it's warm, you know, you're never cold. Even in the winter, you, you take a shawl and that's it. Even the monsoon, you know, it's not that bad. And so Diksha doesn't know how many or which monsoons she'll have to face. She's now officially one of the first disciples of a master who is becoming more and more popular. Other people start arriving from India and beyond through word of mouth. Among them, there's also Sheila. Sheila arrived uh, at the end uh, of 72, if I'm correct. And then she came back with uh, her husband in 73. And at the time, you know, she was uh, like all of us, nobody, you know. The, by the time she arrived in one year, from 71 till 72, the Jewish movement did grow up fast. Like, I remember that once I I noticed it, like in, in three months, our family and I, wow, we, you know, how, how fast. So it, it, it was almost like a a wildfire in, a, in the forest, you know, that suddenly, and suddenly you, what's going on? So when Chile arrived, they were much more uh, Western. Our group was already established. But how did it happen? How did so many Westerners arrive in such a short period of time if at the beginning they were less than half a dozen? Diksha? like many other disciples, has become a means through which the community is born. We all were asked you to bring people. This from the beginning. When after a while I had to go back to Europe, he told me, do you have a friend? You know, if actually once he even told me there are people waiting for me in Geneva. You will be the bridge to bring them to me. Go and, you know, of course he will flatter you and everybody else I know from all of my friend, because our group was small, so we knew each other right away. There were six, eight, ten, eleven, so we, we connected. And everybody had been told similar to bring back a friend. And by then, even I, after I took sannyasi, uh, I became so-called a disciple. I must say that we all were, yeah, enthusiastic about... Uh, uh, him, he, we were seduced, uh, we were um, taken. So when he said uh, there are people waiting for me in Geneva, I felt, okay, okay, I, when I go back, I will uh, uh, tell my friend, tell them that this is opportunity of a lifetime. You know, he knew also how to sell himself. And Lakshmi knew how to sell himself. And unfortunately, I must say, unfortunately, because uh, on one level I feel that I also sold him to my friend. And now, knowing what happened later, even to some of them, I can say that, of course, I wish I hadn't, but I did. Proselytism. We've seen it done before. The child protagonists of Soli have often spoken about relatives and friends who arrived back home from the ashram full of enthusiasm, and how their parents had then, in turn, been taken there by relatives or friends who had met this strange and fascinating character in India. Word gets around and more people arrive. Suddenly we were 
10 in a room, then 20, then 30. And then sometimes he had lecture and you barely could sit in his living room. They were very full. And, and so in, in two, three years, and in, at the time I stayed in India, I went back, I was going back and forth. And even once that I left for literally maybe three weeks, when I came back just in three weeks and I noticed the difference, by the end of 73, it was uh, impossible in a way because he was living in a, an apartment with a big uh, living room, very big, but still. And the people in the building start complaining that there was all this orange uh, people sitting in the, on the stair outside, on the step, uh, in the garden, uh, kissing, hugging. Uh, yeah, we were we were becoming a nuisance, and so they they even tried to evict him. Or they were, the of course the association of the building got together. And Larson was told to find a place that there was time to find a bigger place, and also his reputation had started to be less pristine. The fact that there were talk that he had uh, didn't behave. I would not appropriately. <laughs> As uh, people know, knows, his first booklet was uh, from Sex to Superconscious. He had become, I would say, yeah, he had become already you know, the sex guru that he would say sex uh, should not be a taboo, it's a natural phenomenon. Uh, people are repressed, and he will talk about Tantra how to, he will teach some of us, you know, that uh, in his private session about sexuality, how the West is repressed and even India is repressed uh, and how to be more free with sex. And this also was one of the reasons that he got, started having some articles who were not so friendly toward him, you know. And then, of course, he, he was a kind of a provocateur. So I, I think there was a combination of reason to start a commune, in a way, like a, a congregation of, of people. And Lakshmi managed, there was a, uh, uh, one of his disciples who was well enough, a nice woman, who uh, was wealthy, Western woman, Greek, who um, had enough money to buy him uh, a nice villa, a nice house in Pune, who was uh, just a couple of hours from Bombay. And where usually in the past, uh, during the hot summer months, because it's up is a higher elevation than Bombay, some wealthy Indian in the 19th century and, and the beginning of the 20th century had built nice houses with garden, with big garden. And so Lakshmi managed to find this one house and she bought it. Of course, with the help of the Greek disciple, and that's where he moved in March. And uh, and we were told even before that there were, you know, there would be changes. So, and we were all excited because suddenly he was selling the concept of a community. Because at the time we still back and forth. We live nearby. Some people live in hotels. Some people just stay for a month. You know, some of my friends that even came that were in, in Geneva. They could only take a vacation. People had job, had the responsibility. But suddenly, you know, we were in the ashram, and then some people could live in the community. And that uh, what happened in March? They, you know, he moved to Pune, and. I moved to, uh, and Lakshmi's brother rented a, a house near the ashram, not far away, where some of us were, some were actually his guests and some pay, and we were in this nice house also with a garden. And other people did the same. You know, they, they rented apartment or little villa, and that's how Puna started. But attracting more people to Pune isn't easy. Diksha, in particular, 
whether time is in a relationship with another disciple, is instructed to go back to Geneva and start a small meditation centre with her partner. And she is asked to convince people there to go to India. And this is what the couple does. She leaves for Europe, fulfills her master's will, and then is told to come back. And so after a while, going back and forth, um, he said, uh, good, now you come back, now you can come and stay. So it was almost like we were rewarded by having brought people. Now in retrospect, I can see it. Then I was not aware, of course, uh, that we had we contributed. At the same time, I had uh, got a little extra, ma- a little leftover money that I had from my great town that I changed it in rupee and I gave it to Lakshmi. So there was maybe a combination of things. Said, you come and, and stay. Uh, now you can stay in a way. And so a new chapter of Diksha's story begins. She has become, in her own way, one of the architects of the growth of the movement of a master who will become among the most famous in the world. Acharya Rajnij, Bhagwan Shri Rajnij and Osho are the different names by which he is known, one for each stage of his life, and the one which is about to begin takes place in Pune, the site of his first legendary Indian ashram. Here, Acharya Rajnij, having taken the name Bhagwan Shri Rajnij, establishes his commune, and Diksha, before long, becomes one of the most influential people there. After the first house, in a year, Lakshmi, of course, collected money from other disciples, saying, you know, we can buy another house, and you can buy a room in the other house. So people contributed. And so she bought a second house, and then she bought a third house, and then she bought another plot of land. And that became the ashram in Pune. There were like four plots. In three, there were nice old uh, villa, I will say, and then a plot, uh, a big empty plot of land, who uh, Buddha Hall, the big hall where you still talk. But it became if I think back, you know, from 71, 72, 73, 74, the Asha, by the time in the ashram in 75, 76, already we were a few thousand. And then as uh, more people came, even living in the ashram, we squeezed each other more. You know, there were two people in a room or three people in a room and people share a bathroom. And so it, it was... Uh, Um, I will say, an organic growth, but kind of fast. And in a way, it it grew even before we could even address the issue that such a fast grow did create for us. Like suddenly there was a need for a... A small kitchen because people who work in the ashram didn't have the time to go out of the ashram and find a little Indian restaurant to eat. And so they started with a little Indian kitchen. I think it was a couple start cooking. Of course, Rajneesh Bhagwan, who by then was called Bhagwan, of course, had his own little private kitchen. And then some Western people, I didn't say they complained, but they felt that the Indian food was not. Everybody cooked eat every day Indian food. And so they decide, okay, maybe we should start a, a Western kitchen. And then we start a juice bar, you know. But, but it was so, yeah, I would say fast, because I remember once there was a, a celebration coming. And um, I think it was at the beginning when I started uh, start taking care of the kitchen at the time. Or oh, I was helping, I was helping. And... Uh, we said, oh, you know, there will be so many people coming next week for a celebration. For... And I said, okay, we're at the pot. We didn't even have a pot to cook. So I went out with our money to buy pot because we didn't literally have pot to cook the rice. So Lakshmi said, oh, you figure it out, Diksha, you figure it out. The growth was happening and we were almost running after the growth happened and we were just coping. 
We were just coping. But most people that came were always sold the idea that they had to bring people. They say it was something the people was, were not even aware how much pressure we were put into proselytizing. I remember that once I was uh, writing a letter. I was writing a friend to a friend, and Lashley Parnashi said, so remember to tell her, you know, this is a, a, a you find a guru, and you know, she, right? You know, she said jokingly, you know. So that's how it was. I will go to his room in Bombay, and I brought few people, and then he will say, "How is this person who left? Is she coming back? Is he coming back?" He will inquire, and so that meant that you after you leave his room, will make a point to call the person on the letter. By the way, I was talking to Bhagwan the other day, and he asked about you. So it was a, a network, I will say, kind of a web of support, but also manipulative. But on a certain level, it was maybe the word love bombing. Yeah, it's appropriate. At this time, Diksha is still fully committed. The master and the whole scene are extremely enthralling. She has made friends whom she loves, but she doesn't know yet that soon her new role will transform her, not only into one of the most powerful people of the community, but also one of the most feared. It is very easy to surrender to me, difficult to surrender to Diksha, so I will insist that you surrender to Diksha. That is the way to surrender to me. Diksha will be a harder thing to surrender to. To me, you can surrender easily because I don't come into your day-to-day, moment-to-moment work. So this has to be learned by everybody. You've been listening to Dragon Lady, a podcast written and curated by Roberta Lippi, with Valeria Ardito's sound design. The international voice of Roberta Lippi is Cecilia Gragnani. Dragon Lady is available on storielibere.fm and wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll be waiting for you on the next episode. Storie Libere Production by Gianandrea Cerone and Rossana De Michele. Post and sound design era zero.